we're going to read from Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. Let's see what the Lord has to say. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Pretty classic story. And, if you, and, and it's a challenge for us to see these stories fresh. And um, it's the challenge first and foremost, well, Christians, it's your job. It's a living word. If, the God, if God is here interpreting these words ever, these same words, but to a new culture, a new context, a new situation, then we should not get bored of the word of God. If the angels never tire of staring at Christ, neither should you. So we're going to try to see what do we learn here. And let's begin with a study. In 1973, these two guys, John Darley and Daniel Batson, conducted a study at Princeton University. And they wanted to determine how this Good Samaritan principle worked, how good were people. And they took a bunch of seminary students at the school. And they said, you've got two parts. They brought them in for a study. They said, two things you have to do. One, finish this survey telling us all about your religious faith, what you believe, all your beliefs. The second part was, show up at this building at a certain time, at a certain day, in this one room. Show up because you're going to be giving a very short talk on a topic. And they were given topics that they, um, that they knew something about. Oftentimes, it was actually the Good Samaritan. They were told they were going to speak about it. So when they arrived at this place to give this talk, the researchers said, oh, you know what? Uh, it's actually in the building across the street. We made a mistake. So head on over. And the groups, depending on who they were, were told different things. One group was told, hey, get over next door, but you have no time, like you're late. So get over there as quickly as you can. Another group was told, you have a little bit of time. Like if you leave now, you'll be on time, but don't dilly-dally. Just go. Another group, the last group, was told, you have all the time in the world. Take your time getting there. So they made their way over. Now, what they didn't know was that had nothing to do with the test. The study that they were actually there to figure out was this. Every one of them, as they moved from one building to across the street to the other, had to pass by an actor who was pretending like he was really sore. He was moaning. He was told to cough exactly twice. You know, the same circumstances. He was to pretend like he was this man beaten on the road and to see who stopped to help him. And perhaps not surprisingly, 40% stopped and asked him a question of some type. Only 40%. And the number went down depending on how busy they were. 
The ones who were told you have no time at all, get over there as fast as you can, only 10% of them stopped. In fact, many of them stepped over him, the study said. The, two, the group in the middle that was told they had some time but not to dilly-dally stopped 45% of the time. And the group with all the time in the world, 63% of the time they stopped and offered some help. But in total, 40% only stopped. And the point of this, I mean, there's lots of things you could get from it. In one sense, the researchers came away saying, time determines ethics, not your beliefs. You think, see, what they noticed is those surveys that they wrote about their religious beliefs, it didn't matter how they said things like, I believe my faith is shown by helping people or whatever. It didn't matter how sincere they were, their religious beliefs made zero difference on whether they stopped. So the determination was, it's time that determines how nice you are, not your values. Don't pretend like it's your religion. It's not. Ultimately, you made a choice at that moment. Do I value my obligation to be at this place to speak and risk losing reputation and inconveniencing those people? Is that worth sacrificing for this wretch in need? And like it or not, six out of ten of them said, you're on your own. So let's not pretend like we need more time. If your schedules were more open, it would be better, because it wouldn't be. Time isn't the issue. And when we approach this, this parable, what you're probably used to hearing, unfortunately, is, is that um, we preachers use this Good Samaritan parable sometimes to beat you up with a guilt trip. And we say, be better, be good, start being a nicer person, be a good Samaritan. But... I'm not so sure that that's really the point. Now, of course, the point of this parable is to say, how do you behave as a Christian? How do you take what you believe and actually live it out? If you say this is what you value, then how do you become a person who actually lives accordingly? How do you not become a hypocrite? That's what it's trying to help us do. And, but what we also know is it can't be that Christ is saying, try harder. Just try to be a nicer person. Because the whole point of the parable is him telling the lawyer you can't do anything to gain eternal life. The only way to do it is by being perfect, and you're not. So one, one thing we do know is the parable can't be saying, try harder. Can't be. That can't be the fundamental issue. So what is the parable saying? How do we become these sort of a people who live out our faith and inherit eternal life? Um, and if you're a skeptic, this parable speaks to you and says, stop thinking that the point of life is, well, I'm just trying to be a good person, you know? Just trying to be a good person. You can't be a good person. You're naive. That's what the parable is telling you. So how do we become that person? Well, if we look at this passage, we're going to see, I think, very clearly a few things. We're going to see how to do it. That we need to ask the right question. We need to choose the right answer. And then we need to tap into the right power. Okay? What is the right question, the right answer, and the right power? So how do we become this sort of a person? So let's start with the right question. So the parable comes about as a part of this interaction that Jesus is having with a lawyer. In the ancient world, in ancient Israel, as you, I hope you know, let's assume you do, um, civil law and religious law weren't separated. There was no separation of church and state. So to be a lawyer was to be a professional in understanding the law of God, because the law of God was the law of the land. So a lawyer was a theologian who was a, a lawyer as well. And we're told that he shows up and he asks questions, but he's got an ulterior motive. Luke lets us into the, the news that he is there to trap Jesus to test him, and then later to justify himself. And there's two questions he asks, and those questions reveal that he's asking the wrong questions. 
And the first question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You've probably heard this before, it's, and I've mentioned it briefly. It's a silly question, because the assumption is you can do something to, eter to gain eternal life, that, the point that what God is demanding is better ethics, better behavior from you. And so right away, there's a problem with his question. But there's also a problem because the question reveals what he actually wants. You see, the question isn't, what should I do to please God? What should I do to love my neighbor? It's instead, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's like me saying, what must I do to get that girl into bed? What must I do to get my boss to promote me instead of that person? You see, then all it means is that the good behavior, the loving God, the loving neighbor, is a means to an end. So in loving his neighbor, if all he wants is his own eternal life, then all he is doing is loving himself. So right away, the question is problematic. What, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's the wrong question. And then Jesus tells him, be perfect. Love God and love your neighbor, and you'll get, you'll get eternal life. It's interesting that he then says, who is my neighbor? He doesn't say, how do I love God? I assume he thinks I'm doing that. I've loved God perfectly, but now I need to determine who are these neighbors you speak of? I need to know exactly who it is because if it's just this group of people, the Jews and my, you know, those who are seeking righteousness, then, then I may have done that. I find as a pastor, sometimes if people want to define terms with me, it's not always, but sometimes it's a means of evading the depth of the command. If I can define that the neighbor is just this group of people, then I can send the rest of them to go wherever. I don't have to love them. It's a way to evade. You know, it's like coming to me and saying, and I do, we're all guilty of this, and saying things like, you know, how much violence in a show is too much violence for me to watch? Like, at what point? One murder? Two? Beatings? What is it? Or how many lies? How many white lies? You know, is all white lies bad? You know, if my wife says, do I look fat in this outfit? Is that, is that a lie? Where's that line? Or if I come home from the grocery store and I've got nothing on the list, um, because I'm not very good at the grocery store. Uh, and my wife says, oh, it's okay, dear. Is that lie okay? Like, what's, <laughs> how much is too much? And what we're trying to do sometimes when we define these terms is we're saying, what's the bare minimum requirements? Like, what's the, what's the lowest I can do to get eternal life? And again, it's a problem. My question back is, well, why do you want to sin at all? Why do we want to? And this is what Jesus is asking here. The parable is Jesus, because you notice he doesn't answer it directly. He doesn't say, well, here's who your neighbor is. He gives a story. And the reason he's doing it is he's saying, the question isn't who is your neighbor. The question is, who are you? Who are you in this situation? Stop thinking about these other terms. Who are you? And, you know, the, you may remember this old fable. Um, it's an Aesop's fable. It's a scorpion and the frog. I'll read it because it's very short. Here's what this fable says. A scorpion and a frog meet on the bank of a stream, and the scorpion asks the frog to carry him across on its back. The frog asks, how do I know you won't sting me? The scorpion says, because if I do, I will die too. The frog is satisfied, and they set out. But in midstream, the scorpion stings the frog. The frog feels the onset of paralysis and starts to sink, knowing they will both drown, but he, gasps just, but he has just enough time to gasp, why? replies the scorpion, it is my nature. So, the scorpion understood its nature, that it will do whatever it can, but it can't evade its nature. It knows who it is. Christ's answer is lawyer, redeemer, all of us. 
Do you know why you're asking these questions? Do you actually know who you are? Stop trying to define these terms. The question is, why do you want them defined? Is it because you want to know if I have to love a liberal or a conservative? Is it because I need to know, can I, do I have to love the person who's pro-life and pro-choice? Is it because I have to know, do I have to show love to the person who wants masks and doesn't want masks and so on and pick a number, pick an issue? Is that why we want it defined? Maybe it is. And Christ comes and says, who are you? He wants us to know what drives you. That is the right question that we come to this with. And this is why he gives it to us in a story instead of a lecture. Because a lecture or a, an epistle, like something that Paul sends to the Ephesians, is very good. But sometimes deep theology and theoretical things can be left as theoretical. But stories demand you enter into them and you become part of them. And you ask the question of what would I do in this position? Why would I do what, what they do or not? And so he does that. And the answer to this question is what we have to look at next. If the right question is, who am I? Then what is the right answer? Well, simple in some ways. The right answer of the parable is very clear. Um, be like the Samaritan. He says it himself. You go and do likewise. We want, the goal is, this is a model that we are asked to look at. But it's easy to see that we are to be like the Samaritan. The harder part that I think the parable demands of us is to see that you actually are the Samaritan. Let me explain. I know this is going to push it in maybe a direction you haven't considered. If you have, you should have helped me figure this out. Let's begin with this question. What does he mean when he says, go and do likewise? Does he mean just to mimic the behavior of the Samaritan? Just to do what the Samaritan did? I don't think so. And I think the text shows us this because the text speaks a funny way. You know, Jesus asked the lawyer, he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? See, there's two different questions. So what is written there? What do you actually read? And then how do you interpret what you read? Because there's one thing of seeing what's written, and then there's another thing of how you interpret it. And isn't that where most church problems happen, right? How do we interpret what we see? So Christ is shrewd in asking that question. And if you look at the parable, you notice the same thing is happening. When the priest comes, it says, the priest, when he saw him, he passed by. He saw, they all saw the same thing. They saw a wretch dead or beaten and naked in a ditch. But the way they interpreted that was very different. The priest passes by. The Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. Then the Samaritan, when he saw him, he had compassion. So here's the key. How is it? See, you can't, it's not just behavior. The question is, how do I become like the Samaritan so that when I see these things, I am moved to act? It's not just, well, I'm supposed to act like a robot, so I do. Because ultimately, you'll become like those people in the study. And when it's inconvenient, you won't stop. The question is, how do I think like the Samaritan? What is it in the Samaritan? Why does he use a Samaritan as an example? Is it just because he was lowly? Well, we'll explain, hopefully we'll explain some of that. Because the others... We don't know. This is the amazing part of the parable. It doesn't tell us what these priests and Levites thought, why they passed on the other side. We have to assume. And what we assume is they did it because, well, and I think it's fair to say this. Well, it's inconvenient to stop and help somebody. They were on their way, it says, somewhere. So it would have, the time would have been a problem. Cost would have been a problem. We know that these are Jewish religious officials, which is intentional. So... Uh, they were obliged to stop and help a Jew. But if a man is stripped naked and lying beaten, potentially dead, 
Well, we don't know if he's a Jew or not because the clothing is what determined that usually. And if he is dead as a Jew, I can't touch him or I become unclean. So I risk not just time and money in helping him, but potentially my righteousness I risk by touching. So there's various things. We don't know exactly what it was, but for whatever reason, they weighed it like a transaction and said, it's not worth it. I'll keep walking. The Samaritan, however, stops. And I think the answer is found in, the, in who he was as a Samaritan, the identity of a Samaritan. And we are being told that we are the Samaritan. Let me talk about the Samaritans for just for a second. In the 8th century BC, when the Assyrians came in and destroyed Jerusalem, they took many of them captive to Assyria. But they left some. And those some that were left married and had children with pagans and Gentiles that moved in. The result was this breed of people, the Jews would call them, called the Samaritans. And they were instantly hated by the Jews. In fact, the law says he shouldn't marry Gentiles, so they were actually, their, their very existence was a violation of Jewish law. So when the Jews come back, they despise them. They felt that they were of questionable descent and of inadequate theology. They, didn't, they believed in one God and the Torah, but they didn't. They thought they should worship on a different mountain, Mount Gerizim. They had some slightly different views. And not just that, I mean, all the records, you read these unfortunate letters, it was basically racism, what it was. It was, you are not purebred, therefore you are not valuable. In fact, there's letters in an apocrypha book called Ecclesiasticus. It says that it's only foolish people who live in Shechem, which is the capital of Samaria. So they hated them. They were like, if you want to use a comical example, uh, who remembers Corner Gas, the, the Corner Canadian show? Every time they mentioned Woolerton, the neighboring town, what happened? <laughs> right? They spit. Can't even utter their name in town. And it was very similar. So consider that this Samaritan, he's coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he's in Israelite land. He is a Samaritan. And in that culture, he has, he's an outcast. Right? He has no home, no reputation. No hope. He's actually outside of the love of God. He's cast away from God, according to the Jews, because he doesn't worship right. He is a loser in the culture. So, when he sees a man in the ditch who has been beaten, used, and left to die, the reason he stops is because he recognizes one who inhabits the same neighborhood. Because he himself is an outcast, he recognizes the outcast on the floor. And that is a vital part, I think, that we often miss here is that they are lost together. He sees it when the question is, who is my neighbor? The reason the Samaritan can say, everybody is my neighbor, is because he recognizes that we all share a common condition before God, specifically. We are outcasts and wretches in the world. Every one of us are. And because they sh they're related by this shared wretchedness, he knows how much help he needs. He knows. If you've suffered something, you know who comes around people who are struggling with cancer the most? the ones who have had cancer. The one, you know who comes around the woman who has had a miscarriage or can't, or can't conceive child, children? The ones who have had miscarriages because they understand it. They share, they may inhabit the same neighborhood. The lawyer, however, doesn't inhabit the same neighborhood. He's under the impression that many 